Grade three, thank you, grade three. We're excited to have uh, Ken Davis with us again this morning. He's just finished up an interim role. He, he, they joined, Ken and Heather joined our church as members last year. And then he took an interim position, filling in for a church who needed someone because they were in a transition. He's just finished that up. And two more weeks, he hasn't finished it. He's got two more weeks of it. But who's counting, right? No. <laughs> but we are glad to have you here in our pulpit this Sunday, sharing the word of God to us. So... Thank you, Ken, for being here. Come on. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 22. Matthew 21. Verses 1 to 22, I'm reading from the ESV. Pretty familiar text. I think this will be the first time I've ever spoken from this text when it wasn't Palm Sunday. Verse 1. Now when they drew to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives... Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. 
And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. This is the Word of God. Um, We thank God for it. Um, Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray, Father, as we enter into this Scripture, that the song we just sang would be the prayer of our hearts. Show us Christ. Uh, We pray that your word would prove, your word would prove to be what you say that it is, uh, that which is sharper than a two-edged sword, and that you would pierce us where we need to be pierced, you would comfort us where we need that. I pray, Father, that Jesus Christ would increase in our estimations this morning, and we would decrease. We pray, Father, that Jesus Christ would be heard above the preacher, seen more clearly than the preacher that we would leave here uh, amazed at Christ our Savior. And so I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our King and our Redeemer. Accomplish your purposes for us at this hour, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Heather, could I have that water that we brought so that, yeah, thank you. The last church I pastored, we would usually start with about 70 people in the room. By the time I got up to preach, there would be about 170. There were some people who came to church, thought we didn't sing at all. And and when, when we started this morning... Uh, Josh said that we were sparse. Well, if this is sparse, that's not bad. It's a pretty good group here this morning. Um, if it was sparse, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't blame the weather or the holidays. Could be you announced who the preachers are. But uh, thanks, thanks to those who pick out the music. You're paying attention to the texts that are being preached from. That's very encouraging. And it's very encouraging, too. Uh, my mother was an accomplished piano player and uh, my house was constantly full of music my mother was mentally ill she had many problems and her solace was the piano she played it constantly she played hymns all the time she would have loved it here this morning because a church with dust in the piano was an abomination to my mother and uh, there's no dust on this piano and that's very encouraging too thank you so this is our home and it's the first time we've been here since I preached from Matthew 8, and uh, that was quite a while ago. But we do finish in a few weeks at, uh, at Aaron Mills Baptist in Mississauga. And Lord willing, to your good or ill, you will see more of us around here, I hope. Okay. The, more, the older I get, 
And the more I study the Word of God, the more, I don't know, flabbergasted, I guess, I become with it. It's an incredible text. And every, every time you get into a text to preach it and study it, you come away with the same thought. What an incredible thing this is. And there's no way I can relate to you everything that there is in here to relate. Um, it's a very familiar text, and familiarity breeds contempt. Um, and I hope that's not the case. And I'm glad that we get a chance to look at this text with it not being Palm Sunday. I've entitled this sermon, um, Your King Comes. And it's from verse 5, which is a Matthew's quote of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And I have five points. I may not get through them all. Um, most of my sermons have one. I want to get to at least three. I don't know if we'll get to all five. But just so you'll know which ones I missed, your king comes to you, your king liberates you, your king heals you, your king curses you, and your king empowers you. Um, So let's... This little text sort of has a meta-narrative all its own, and I, I hope preaching, understanding Scripture should never be a matter of us putting things into the text. And I don't want to do that. But I see in this whole thing, it, in, the, in, the, in the triumphal entry, you've got Jesus coming to us, and then he clears the temple, purges the temple. He clears the obstacles of worship for us. And then he heals us. That's forgiveness. And then he accepts us and our, and our worship in verses 15 to 17. He curses the unfruitful and he commissions the faithful. You got, you, you got in a little package here just about everything the Christian life is. Jesus comes, he enables us to worship, he forgives our sins, he accepts our worship, he curses us when we are not fruitful or he curses the faults for being unfruitful and he commissions the faithful. That's about a summary of the whole book of Matthew. It's just about a summary of the whole plan of salvation. And you've got it all in this, these first 21 verses here. So let's start with this in the triumphal entry. Your king comes to you. He initiates the coming. I don't think there was a little meeting where the disciples said, hey, let's go find a donkey and we'll put Jesus on it and, and, and we'll enter and just have a lovely week and then he'll overthrow Rome and all will be well. The coming into Jerusalem is his idea. The coming to the world is God's idea. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. Our God, you, you can't begin to understand the gospel without this truth being firmly planted in your heart. Our God is unapproachable. You can't enter into the presence of God. God invites Isaiah into the presence of God, and it just both slays him. When Jesus visits John on the Isle of Patmos, he falls down as a dead man. When Ezekiel has his vision of God in chapter 1, chapter 2 begins by saying, and the Spirit came and got me up. Why? Because the presence of God made him fall, and he couldn't stand there 
on his own. If God doesn't come to us, we will never get to God. That's, that's, that's the whole thing. That's what the gospel is. Getting to God is the only, getting to Christ is the only solution to our sin. Getting to Him is the only way we can be saved. We can't get there. He must come to us. Your King comes to you. That's the whole story of the incarnation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It is the whole story of the whole plan of salvation. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. God comes to Abraham. What was Abraham doing? He's a little pagan in the Ur of the Chaldees, worshiping whatever little gods that the Ur of the Chaldees worship. And God comes to Abraham and says, get out of here. We're going to do stuff. God, when Adam and Eve fall, they sow their little fig leaves together and they go hiding and they run away and God comes where are you he comes looking for them and they are terrified God comes to Moses he didn't light the bush say let's see how long we can get this to burn he doesn't want anything to do with going back to Egypt God comes to Gideon great mighty man of valor who's threshing wheat in a wine press so that nobody sees him he's so terrified god comes to the prophets god calls them jesus picks out who his disciples will be god in acts chapter 16 says no you can't go to there to paul you can't go to asia i can't go to bithynia go to philippi instead he comes paul is on the way to damascus to imprison and kill believers and God comes. He comes to John on the Isle of Patmos. Your king comes to you. That's the story of the Bible. That's, that's everything. Salvation was not and is not our idea. It is God's idea. And he is the one who in love plans out salvation for lost sinners. Our salvation is not ever, ever, ever God responding to us. You say, at one level, we come and he receives. Absolutely. But we come because he came. Because we come because he invites. We, become, we come because he comes into our hearts and turns darkness into light. He shows us the wonders of Christ. Why is it you heard the gospel all those times? It was like water on a duck's back. And then one morning you heard it and poof, I need that. God comes. He comes to us. He plans to save us. He awakens us the need. He, he awakens in us the need for saving. He shows us that Christ is the only place to go. And he brings us to his son. And that's true of mankind in general. And it is true of every testimony in here of people who know him. But if you don't know him, let me ask you this. What in the world are you doing here this morning? Why are you here now? Habit? Score some points with God, perhaps? Mom said you had to. Fear? Nice air-conditioned building before the malls open. Um, 
you pray for Hassan Bell in Thistletown Baptist Church this morning. There's no air in that building. You get 150 people in there. It, it's the only thing that's ever ma- enabled me to preach short. Um, <laughs> but I don't know why you came here this morning. And it would be wrong for us to assume that you are here because your heart is just bursting with a desire to worship God with other people. But God got you here. That's what you need to know. You say, no, mom screamed at me till I said I'd come. Or, no, it's just my habit. God got you here. God made your mother scream. God's, God's the source behind the, behind the irritant. God is the one who created the habit. And God got you here this morning to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to you. You will never, you will never stand before God and say, why didn't you tell me? He's telling you now. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came. And he got you here this morning so that you would hear And finally, after hearing it a thousand times before, realize that this is about you. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will wake it up in you. That that God has made you, and He's made you to worship Him, and you are not because your heart is running away from Him. And you are under the judgment of God, and God has sent His Son into the world so that if you will believe in Him, you will be saved from your sins. And Jesus is the only way that you can find God. He's the only way that you can be without pain, sorrow, sick, or death, sickness or death for eternity with Him, singing His praises in in fulfilling the purposes for which you were first made. He is the only way that that can be realized in you. And if you If you turn from your sins this morning and turn to Him in faith, you will be saved from your sin. And He will come and dwell in you and empower you to live a life that pleases Him. That's why you're here this morning, to hear that. And if you don't know Christ, you came in here without Christ, you can leave with Christ. God comes to us and God got you here. And if that's all you hear this morning, if you click off now, that's fine. You need to come to Christ if you don't know Him. Your King comes to you. The Bible is one story. It is the story of God crushing the serpent's head. I don't know if I said this to you before, but that's that's the Bible. God comes to Adam and Eve and the serpent, the devil. The first prophecy of Christ is made to the devil. A child, you will crush his heel. But he will crush your head. And the rest of the Bible is just God's mapping out this plan, showing us how he crushes the serpent's head. That's the Genesis 3.15. You know, you give a title to the Bible, it's Serpent Crusher. That's it. The rest of the Bible is after Genesis 3.15, the whole thing is just God showing us the serpent crusher. The Old Testament points to Christ. The Gospels point at Christ. The Acts points out the spread of the Gospel of Christ. The, the Epistles point out about life in Christ. And the Revelation points out becoming Christ. Your King comes because He's fulfilling a plan of Scripture. Matthew quotes one 
text about your king come because it's the text that mentions the donkey. He could have quoted every book of the Old Testament about what God is doing so that the king comes. He comes to us. He comes in triumph. He comes to rescue sinners. He has had his sights set on this for a very long time. In his own lifetime, we're told in Luke 9, 52, he resolutely set his eyes to go to Jerusalem. Yeah, but it was long before that. Goes back to Genesis 3. Goes back before the foundations of the world. He comes to defeat sin. And the triumph, he comes in triumph, riding on the donkey. It's not war, it's peace. And he's telling us, I have won a victory. Well, it's about to happen. They don't, they don't, they don't get it, of course. And sometimes we don't. Colossians 2.15 is one of my favorite verses about the cross. It says that on the cross, Jesus made a public spectacle of principalities and powers. What an incredible thing. He made a public spectacle of principalities and powers. Put yourself around the cross at Calvary on the day of the crucifixion, and you look at Christ. What do you see? You see a man with a crown of thorns, there's blood dripping down his face. You see bruises from where they beat him. You see the hole in his side just pouring out blood and water. You, you, you see a mangled mess. What a pathetic picture. And Paul tells us, or God tells us through Paul in Colossians 2.15, on the cross, Jesus makes a public spectacle of his enemies. How good night in the morning. What in the world is going on? God is just upside down to us. Or we're upside down to God. That's not how you defeat. That's why Jesus is going to get in trouble by the end of this week. That's not how you do it. No, no, no. You're not doing it the way we like. Put him to death. And they're screaming for a victory over sin, even though they don't even know it. We need our eyes opened. He comes in triumph to defeat sin, and he does it by making a public spectacle of himself so that he can make a public spectacle of his enemies and put them to shame and defeat them and crush the serpent's head once and for all. Your king comes to you. What a glorious thing that is. Verses 12 to 13 We read, Jesus entered the temple, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. All I knew about this text growing up was that this was why we shouldn't have bake sales in church. (laughs) There's another one right there. (laughs) Yes. Okay. There may be valid reasons for not holding bake sales in church. And this text might be part of it. But there's something far more deep and serious going on than how the church should raise its funds. Although that's, that's, there's something going on here. Don't turn, don't turn the place of worship in just to a, into a place to make money. We like peace and quiet when we worship. That's why we have nurseries. How can you worship with a cacophony of sound going on? What if we had somebody at the back there yelling out as I'm trying to preach to you about the latest version of the Bible you should read and, and somebody else over there trying to sell CDs of his gospel music and he's barking out that and we're trying to worship. It just wouldn't work. It interferes with worship. It's why there's a law in Ontario. It's against the law in Ontario to interrupt a service of worship. Every pastor should know that. 
and uh, actually we've at Thistletown we had opportunity to use it although we never have we never did but uh, people who get up and yell and scream and people with mental issues and so on but um, it, it gets in the way of worship and that's what's happening here the worship of God is being interfered with the people who are buying and selling are buying and selling for the purpose of worship get your sheep here Get your money changed here. You can't put wicked Roman money into the coffers. You need good Israelite money, and so you've got to do it here. And they charge an exorbitant amount in the exchange rate, and they charge an exorbitant amount for the sheep that needs to be killed. And the worship gets interfered with. And it happens, as it often happens, that the things that people set up to help people worship become the most important things of all. And pretty soon the worship's forgotten about. Let's go make some money. We can go in today and sell a few sheep and exchange the money and just do just make a real bundle for ourselves. And that's what we're prone to do. We can let the form get in get in the way of the function. We can let the outer things that try to help us worship become more important than the worship itself. But there's even more yet to this. I quote from an old 19th century commentator. The place where this was done, the cleansing of the temple, was not the temple itself, but the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. This was esteemed the least sacred part of the temple. And the Jews, it seems, did not consider it profane to appropriate this to any business in any way connected with the temple service. The things which they bought and sold were at first those pertaining to the sacrifices, It gave rise to much confusion, noise, contention, and fraud and was exceedingly improper in the temple of the Lord. Jesus cleansed the Gentile court. From the Gentile court in the temple complex, there was a stairway that led up to the court, the next court, which is the court of Israel and the court of women. And the closer you get to the Holy of Holies, the fewer people are allowed. So you get the Gentiles, then you got the women, the Israelite men, and then you get the Holy of Holies where only the priests can go on only once a year. And along the stairway, there are a series of columns or pillars. And on the pillars or on the wall accompanying the pillars was written, Let no Gentiles enter here upon pain of death. An important point related to the cleansing of the temple. There's only one place in the temple complex where Gentiles can pray and worship. The Gentile court. To go further into the temple is a death sentence on them. And the only place where they can worship has been turned into a profiteering marketplace. Listen to Mark 11:17. Mark brings something out that Matthew does not. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You hear that? You hear the difference? Mark adds the words. We didn't invent them. Jesus said them. Matthew doesn't include them. Mark does. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. All nations. Gentile nations. And if the death penalty is in force 
for going into the temple and the Gentile court is taken up with selling and the buying, where will the Gentiles worship? They won't. And that's just fine with those who are in charge of the temple. It may be be just fine with a lot of people who are going into the temple to worship. But it is not okay with Jesus. And what angers Jesus, first of all, is that God is being profaned. But second of all, he is angered that this profiteering in the temple prevents non-Jews from worshiping. They don't, these are people the religious leaders do not like. Perhaps some Roman soldiers have been to a synagogue somewhere else and they've had stirred in them an interest in Israel's God. And so they go to Jerusalem and they go to the temple to worship. How can he worship? How can he find out about God receiving Gentiles into the community of the faithful? He won't. And for those leading the temple, it doesn't matter. He's a Roman soldier, for goodness sakes. We don't want him in here anyway. It didn't matter to the temple leaders that the Gentile court was being desecrated. They're Gentiles. They're only Gentiles. Gentiles don't matter. Gentiles can be left out. Gentiles can go to hell. They're just Gentiles. Jesus says here that even the Gentile court is for prayer. Even this area, outside of the Jewish court, outside of the Holy of Holies, even this place, God accepts sinners. The Jewish leaders would never have allowed this kind of activity to take place in the court of the Jews, and certainly not in the Holy of Holies. They would never have let this happen where Jewish men are permitted to worship And what Jesus is angry about here is not just that the place of worship is desecrated. He is angry that non-Jews can't worship. You wonder if they, listen, sometime soon you should read the book of Isaiah and every time you come to any reference about the salvation of the nations, put a little G for Gentiles beside it and after you finish Isaiah, go back and see how many Gs you've got written in the margins of the book of Isaiah. Incredible. They didn't get that. This can be really scary, dear people. This can be really scary. We don't have a temple other than the gathering of the people of God. We are the temple of God. But we are Gentiles, most of us. I don't know if there's any non-Gentiles here this morning or not. And this text should fill us with a great deal of joy. God gets angry. The Gentiles were not permitted to worship. God receives all who will come, all who will repent, all who will trust. He receives all. He prepares people for worship and prayer. But the scary part is, we must ask ourselves, can we ever be like the leaders of the temple? Who are our Gentiles? Who are our unacceptable ones? Are there people who need to change before we'll let them in? Now, I'm not talking about church membership. We have to know Christ. We have to be baptized in order to become members, in order to serve in some capacity as the people of God. We're not talking about that. But are there those we believe are simply 
beyond God's purposes to save. I don't believe that the mercy of God is eternal. It runs out. And even, even before people die, I mean, Romans 1 is plain that God, that, that God gives up on people. We don't know who they are. The mercy of God is not eternal, but until he comes, we are to offer it to everybody. And we pray for wisdom. And we go where, where I heard one man say, where the schooling fish are, where people, where people you know, are interested and so on. But are there people that we believe are just beyond the pale? Do we take upon ourselves the role of God, as it were, and give up on some? Are there those that we do not believe can be saved. This world is a cesspool of immorality and godlessness. It is a cornucopia of people trying to live in a way that runs contrary to the ways that God says we should live. But we must never fall into thinking that God can't reach into the hearts of people in the worst kinds of sin and degradation. And kindle a spark of desire for him. So that they start asking questions. And start searching because the king has come to them. And people start wanting to have better. And they want to be better. And they're tired of trying to shape the square peg of their lives into the round hole of of comfortable and satisfaction, soul-satisfying living. And in response to a movement of God in their hearts, they seek out a place of worship. How do we receive them? We rightly preach that people cannot reform themselves before they come to Christ. The old hymn, Just As I Am, without any hope without a single plea except one, oh Lord, that you died for me and that I can come. I come just as I am and I ask you to change me so that when I leave, I will not be as I was. But before they are saved, they must come with all the baggage and all the dirt and all the cesspoolness of the world stinking up the place so that they can find Christ. Should gay people come just as they are? Or do we insist that they change before they can come? That's the the opposite to the gospel. Can the Muslim come just as he is, seeking Christ? Of course. There's no other way to come. They cannot reform themselves. They cannot change themselves. But they can be changed by God but those people wouldn't come here some might say but that's our point isn't it God can put a hunger in their hearts to find the one way to God can't he do we think that there are people that the gospel cannot reach who would never even consider the claims of the gospel what does Romans 1.16 say about the gospel It is what? Power of God. 
gospel is the power of God to those who believe. God changes sinners. And we go to 1 Corinthians 6, and Paul says, he lists all these sins, and then says, such were some of you. You are in that list, and he saved you, and he can save them. We don't erect booze for the buying and selling of merchandise for the sake of profit. But we got to make sure we don't have hearts and minds that, that prohibit people from thinking that this is a welcoming place. There's two extremes in the world that I see. You know, on the one hand, you got the message. We'll call it the Westboro message. You know, the Westboro Baptist Church message. God hates everybody who doesn't see like the 15 of us do. Westboro Baptist Church has a membership of about 15 people. And, and if you don't see things like them, God hates you. And a godless community hears that. Why would they ever want Christ if that's the truth? The other message is you never have to change. God loves you just like you are. You're all okay. Happy, smiley, kissy face. That's it. And we need a message down the middle. God receives you as you are to make you what you should be. And he does it because he loves you. And we love you and we welcome you. And we, we want you to know that you can change, that God can forgive you. That's the message of the gospel. And I wonder if there's anybody in this room who hides secrets because they're afraid they're not going to be welcome. Church is a community of faithful people. We don't care what your sins are. We are here to help you. We are here to receive you. And if you come to Christ, you will be saved. And if you're already coming to Christ and you're wrestling with something that's big and, and dirty and sneaky and secret, and how could I ever tell? Oh, boy. I don't come to this church much. I hope I can start coming more. But I think I can say with great safety, we don't care what you're wrestling with. And you need help. You can't do it alone. And the biggest, the, one of the biggest obstacles to you ever gaining victory over your sin is that you're the only one who knows about it. And don't be afraid to open up and come. How do we get there from the cleansing of the temple? Because they're not welcome, these people. The year before my father died, he was still interiming. He was an interim pastor. He was approaching 80 years old. He wouldn't live to see his 81st birthday. He died in 1999. In 1998, he and mom had their 50th anniversary, and we all went down to Nova Scotia. And I called the deacons. I said, I'd like to meet with you about dad. He had already been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He was still able to preach fine. Um, and so I went to the deacons, and I said, guys, I, we just want to know as a family, what are you going to do with dad? You need a pastor here. Dad is willing to preach. He's willing to do all he can, but he can't do near what he used to be able to do. You know that his mind is slowly deteriorating, and we just want to make sure that you don't dump him and leave him out in the alley somewhere. What, what are your plans? And they promised me that they would give him lots of notice and all of this kind of stuff. And I said, Dad can't do the outreach anymore. He can't do what he wants to do. He wants to be knocking on every door in this community and inviting people to Christ, inviting people to come to this church. I said, what a community. And the church where he was, 
had once been in a prosperous part of the town where that church was. And over time, as often does, that part of town, which was the downtown area, deteriorated and became welfare homes and, and drugs and all this kind of stuff. And it was in a nasty neighborhood. And I said to the guys, guys, look at the mission field you've got here. Look at these people. I have been watching your community. You need somebody who can go get them. And one of the guys responded by saying, we don't want them. And one of the other fellows intercepted me because he, he saw the red going up my face. And, and he said, we'll take anybody who will come. <laughs> but I've never heard it that bold before. But do we want them? Do we want them? Jesus was angry that the Jews didn't want them. We need to sell sacrifices to people who don't have any. We need to change the money so that they can not putting the Roman money into the coffers of the temple. What are we going to do? Well, we can sell some sacrifices here. We can change the money for Where are we going to do that? Well, we can just do it in the Gentile court. It doesn't matter. It matters. It mattered to Jesus. He's indignant. Your king comes. Your king liberates. He cleansed that temple so Gentiles could worship in it. And he liberated them. Come and worship. Third, told you we'd get to three. Your king heals. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. This is astounding. Ah, no, Jesus is always healing people. Just watch the wording here. And the blind and the lame came to him. Jesus has just purged the temple of its idolatrous practices. Nobody's running for him. This is a scene of people in terror running away from him. He's got a whip in his hand. He's got a voice that is shaking the walls. He's kicked over their tables. He's whipped them in the back and the face, and he's just a madman. And they're, he's here. They're headed that way. And then this verse, right after that, says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 12 says. Our God is a consuming fire. You see that in the cleansing of the temple. God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 5 says. You see that right here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 puts it this way. Give me a minute. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. But the most terrifying one for me is Revelation 19, where we read this. I saw heaven opened, and behold, this is verse 11. 
And behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will, now, now follow the imagery here. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That is the most terrifying verse in all the Bible to me. A winepress. You've got a big vat, and it's got a lid that comes down, and it's got this big, like, corkscrew type thing on it. A, a, a screw thing, and it's got a big handle, and you, you turn it, and it starts pressing down on the grapes, and you keep turning it, till it, and it keeps moving down, and the more you turn it, the more juice comes out, and you turn it till you can't turn it anymore, till there's nothing left of what was in there. It's crushed, and the Son of God comes on a fiery, on a white horse, with fire in his eyes, treading the winepress of the wrath of God till it is fully expended. That's terrifying. And it causes people to run. And in Revelation 6, we're told that people would rather be killed by the rocks and mountains falling on them, hoping that that would spare them from having to face the wrath of the Lamb. So you've got these people running from the terror of God, and then you've got the blind and the lame running towards them. What is that about? The closest human example I can think, poor Heather. She hears all these illustrations <laughs> all the time. But I, every, this, this is my story. My father just told me he was a preacher. He was six foot four and... And most of his life, he weighed around 250 pounds. He was massive. He was a giant of a man. He had, he had, he had, my mother was five foot two. I'm exactly seven inches taller than her and seven inches shorter than dad. And his, his, his hands were massive. And when he was growing up, his, fa- his father didn't own a horse. He used my father to pull the manure wagon and the vegetable wagon in the fall. My father was his horse. He pulled the wagon for the vegetables. He's a powerful man. I remember my brother once was, was uh, lifting weights. He had a set of weights. And he said, let's get Dad up here. He was in the attic. He said, Dad, come on up here. And my brother had just lifted this amount. He said, Dad, can you lift that? <laughs> my father went. He said, now what? He said. <laughs> he was just a giant, powerful man. He was a fighting fundy. Um, he would get in the pulpit and when he started talking about sin whatever he said about it you knew he didn't like it and his face would get red and he would hit the pulpit and you knew that sin was not a good thing and he would rage against it he was a fighting fundy a fighting fundamentalist preacher and he would invite people to Christ And then he would walk to the end of the church to meet people. And I would 
turn around and run to that man. And he would get down on one knee and open up his arms. And I'd run and he'd scoop me up. And I was not afraid. Even though five minutes earlier, there was spit and wrath and everything coming out of that man's mouth. But I was never afraid. Why not? This is my dad. He loves me. Do you know who Robert Munch is? Parents? you know Robert Munch? Have you read the book to your children yet? David's Father? Huh? Parents, if you haven't read David's Father, you buy David's Father by Robert Munch, you read it to your children, and then you give them a theological lesson about what it is to have a great big father. David's Father is a giant. And David goes into the store to buy candy, and the store owner is about to kick them out, and David's father says, These are my kids. And the store owner runs around the store three times and gives them samples of everything for nothing. They're terrified. And the little girl falls down. David's friend falls down. And David's father picks her up in the palm of his hand and puts a Band-Aid on her and comforts her. That's our God. Go by David's father. Read it to your children and then teach them about God. All right? This is our God. And it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God unless you're his child. 1 Corinthians 3 will tell us those who destroy the church will themselves be destroyed. I don't need to take vengeance on anybody. Wrath is God's business. He will protect me. God is our refuge and strength. Very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Though what? Though the mountains fall into the sea. Wow. Earthquakes. Volcanoes. Floods. There is a place in the city of God. Be still and know that I am God. If you sit here this morning outside of Jesus Christ, you're not truly worshiping. And the anger of Jesus should absolutely terrify you. You're not his friend, but dear ones, listen. If you see that you are crippled and broken in a spiritual sense, then you run to him and he will bend down when he sees you coming and he will welcome you like the prodigal son. The father saw him coming from afar off and ran out to greet him. And he scooped him up and said, put the best clothes on him. Go into the house and get the best clothes. What are those? What are the best clothes? God's. They're the Father's clothes. And we are dressed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. The best robes there can be. And God will do that for you. Your king curses. Well, we're done. But he curses the fig tree for having no fruit. It's got leaves. It should have fruit. What's the fruit? When I grow up, the fruit was this. Souls, you've led to Jesus. I don't see that here. What is the fruit? Go to Galatians 5. Good place to start, I think. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's not bad. Jesus hated fruitlessness. Cursed the fig tree. You will know a fruit by its, you will know a tree by its fruit. Told the parable to the sower. Spring, some spring up right away, but because they have no 
root and they bear no fruit. They only last for a short time. Three, three times we're told the parable of the sower in Matthew. Well, once in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they all have different twists, but they all say the same thing at the very end. They all bear fruit. Matthew says, I think, to him who understands it. Matthew or Mark or Luke say to him who accepts it. And then it's Luke said to him who keeps it. To him who understands it, accepts it, keeps it. They bear fruit. When Jesus saves somebody, he does something. Changes our hearts. And in John 15, he says, we purge out the fruitless. We purge out those branches on the vine that bear no fruit. They don't belong on the vine. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness, Paul will tell Titus. God's children produce fruit. If there is no fruit, there's been no salvation. There's got to be some kind of fruit. What Jesus plants, he grows and it bears fruit. And the fruit may not be grand and glorious stuff as we think of what is grand and glorious, but it's real and it's powerful and it's life-changing. And finally, your king empowers. When the disciples saw the fig tree, in verse 20, they marveled, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus said, if you have faith and do not doubt, you'll only do what I, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Well, we could spend years in there, couldn't we? But just, just think about this. Do you know of anyone in the history, in 2,000 years of Christian history, who's cast a mountain into the sea? I don't. Jesus in Matthew 17 said, if you've got faith as big as a grain of mustard seed, you can do this. The TV preachers tell us that we need to be showing our faith through great acts of faith, but I don't know that any single one of them has ever thrown a mountain into the sea. It was an expression for seeing do great things. It's a metaphor. There were certain teachers called the rooters up of mountains. As John MacArthur says in his commentary, there were rooters up of mountains. You will do what is impossible to do. Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 12, you do greater than I have done. What's that about? You go give the gospel to somebody. And you who had a sour, foul mouth, cast that mountain into the sea. You can't get along with anybody. You just like to be left alone all the time. You who just wish everybody would just leave you alone. God can move mountains. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of that and more. And we serve a God who can throw mountains into the sea, and we serve a God who says to us, trust me, don't you say to me, I, I abominate this from Christian people. I've been struggling with sin all my life. But I hate it when somebody, that's just the way I am. I want to smack them. That's just the way you are. It's not the way the gospel is in you. Man, I followed our church at Thistletown. Well, I'm from such and such a country, and that's how we are. Stop that. Jesus changes people. Well, I'm going to heaven. You know, we'll wait for it then. No, that's when you get perfected. 
Right now you're making progress towards it. Don't say that's just the way I am. God changes people. There's no sin bigger than the God who lives in you. And he commissions us. He says, now go out and throw mountains in the sea. How do you do that? You live faithfully for Jesus Christ. You give the gospel to somebody and they come to believe and you stand back with your jaw dropping and say, God let me, God allowed me to be part of that. Can God, can God give the gospel better than you? Yeah. But he says, trust me and let watch, just watch me. And you know why he does that? Because he wants to change the world through little nothings that are in the world. And he uses the things that are not, like you. And so we don't say that's just the way I am. We say, I'm going to do what God calls me to do, what God has gifted me to do, what God expects me to do, what God, what? Enables me to do. So there we are. Your king comes. He has come to you. And he has enabled you to worship. He has, per- he, he has gotten rid of the obstacles that prevented you from worshiping him. He has healed you and forgiven you if you are his. He warns you that fruitlessness means you're not really saved. And then he says, go. And if I'm going with you, you can put mountains into the sea. What an incredible thing this is. What an incredible God this is. Your king has come to you. And he can do all this in you for his glory for your good and for the betterment of a world that needs to hear about him let's pray heavenly father we thank you for how good you are to us we thank you for leaving us this text we thank you that we are yours because you came to us you sent your son for us and you have rescued us and father we pray for any in this room who haven't been rescued yet and show them that the reason you got them here this morning was that they may leave here with you even though they came in without you. We thank you, Father, that you enabled us in our crippledness, in our brokenness, in our blindness, and yet to be able to come to you and find you and be given sight and strength. And we thank you, Father, that we are able to worship you because you have cleaned up all the obstacles that get in the way of our worshiping you through your grace. And we thank you, Father, that you have warned us about what it means to be a Christian. And help us to bear fruit for you, fruit that will last and never be said of us that we weren't real because there was no fruit. And we pray, Father, that we would hear the call of God upon us to move mountains. And that would not terrify us. And we would not be content with just the way we are we would be an example of what God can do in humble, faithful sinners who trust in a great God so that they move mountains. Do this for us, for your glory, for our good, for the good of this assembly, and for the salvation of our communities. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please stand and join with us.
fortress is our God. Our bulwark never failing. Our helper here amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power great and armed with cruel You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord, from age to age the same, and he must win the
receive this benediction from the end of Matthew. Jesus said, Behold, I am with you 